feeling that you know, decisions that government was making, you know, it's always the case to some extent, you know, going to affect people's lives massively. But in this case, if we got it wrong, the whole financial system came crashing down. Some people still resist it. They say, hang on, all this kind of stuff about impact and, and, and outcomes kind of misses out the passion and so forth. But I think if you can put the two together, you really have a, a sector that can do so much more. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Dan Corey, a very warm welcome to Pepsi Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. You are the CEO of New Philanthropy Capital. What's its mission? What's its purpose? Well, what MPC is all about is trying to increase the impact that the social sector has. Um, you know, it's a fantastic sector full of mission, full of passion, full of heart, whether that's charities doing stuff or uh, philanthropists giving their money or grant makers and so forth. Um, and our sort of uh, aim is to try and make sure that, that people are using those kind of resources that they've got in the most effective way. It's not the kind of natural thing for the sector in some ways, because as I say, it's driven by passion. Um, and so we asked the question, you know, you, you owe charity or you owe funder, you have a certain amount of resources. Are you using it in the best way to achieve your mission? Do you know? Do you know what you're trying to achieve and so forth? So that's what we're all about. We do it in lots of different ways, Mark. It was launched 20 years ago. And it started off a bit different, with a different focus, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I, I think it did, although, although you know, people often say this, don't they, but there's a golden thread running through the whole thing. Because when it began, it was, uh, it was a small set of uh, actually city people, it's quite a lot of them Goldman Sachs, and they had a social conscience, I'm pleased to say. And they felt that they themselves wanted to uh, get involved in philanthropy, and they thought a lot of other people did, but that they thought that people find it a very confusing place. So there you are, you've got some money, you want to give it away, and you can't work out who are the good charities to give it to and who are the not good charities. You, you don't understand all the things you learn in the private sector about how you assess firms and where to invest and uh, allowing for your kind of risk appetite and so on just didn't seem to work. So they set up an organisation which they hoped would uh, be able to create some metrics which would allow you to answer that question, which charity should I invest in? And they actually thought it would, to some extent, be a bit like the private sector equivalent. So a philanthropist with some money would just say to this new organisation they were setting up, you know, here's my money, you allocate it for me to maximise social impact, and I'll pay you a percentage. Very, very similar to what happens in the private sector. And a lot of that didn't work, to be quite honest, Mark. I mean, the metrics turn out to be very difficult. We're still very metric heavy, but the idea that you can create a single metric which will tell you whether you should put the money into, uh, you know, sort of youth mental health rather than sort of adult loneliness or something, you know, it turns out to be a bit of a pipe dream. Um, and that, that philanthropists, you know, want to get much more involved than that. They don't want to be so uh, hands off. But the basic idea they thought, which is if you could create that, then money would flow into the good charities that were really achieving social outcomes. Uh, they wouldn't flow into the less good ones that weren't really achieving very much. And in the end, you'd have, in aggregate, more social impact. And I think we've, we've clung on to that idea as the key mission. But it's changed over the years. We, um, you know, we don't only work with philanthropists. We work very directly uh, with charities, frontline charities, all types, big ones, small ones, and so forth. Um, and we also sort of over time realised um, 
that we needed to do more than just kind of uh, doing advice to the sector and consultancy for the sector, which we do do. But we had to influence the sector. We had to advocate for it to change. Um, and also we needed to advocate to other people, government and so forth uh, at all levels, because often they're making uh, laws and the way their procedures work, making it very hard for the sector to have impact. So we've ended up spreading uh, ourselves out wide. But the key the key mission, I think, is probably not unfamiliar to the founders of MPC, or I like to think that anyway. And I've still got two of the founders on my board. Yeah, and I remember at the time, um, there was sort of uh, adding a bit of empirical data into how you ch judge uh, charities, or sort of maybe even talk, talk of a league table, uh, you know, where you might have, you know, s stars of the show, but actually they're moving away from that pretty quickly. I find it fascinating that, people will pay consultants to do business, but they won't necessarily do the same to, uh, when it comes to philanthropy to get that professional guidance or support or help. You know, they won't necessarily pay for that kind of... Have you found that yourself? Well, I tell you, I mean, you know, as I say, a, a part of our work is, is consultancy, and you certainly don't go into consultancy in the charitable sector if you want to make lots of money. Um, uh, because, um, you know, people, they sort of... They come to the sort of sector, uh, you know, with, with passion and so forth, and they don't really want to pay anyone to help them improve it. And it's, um, but I think that's changed over the years. I think that perhaps we always had, thought we could uh, persuade people who were giving money, uh, who were used to paying for advice to some extent. You know, often the, the philanthropists, for instance, are sort of people who made their money in business or in the city or whatever. And they're kind of used to the idea you need some external advice, but it's still hard there, you know, because they're just giving away this money. And if they're paying someone a bit of money to help advise them so they give it away better, then they're giving in aggregate a bit less. I think there's been a big change in the charities as well, though, that they uh, do understand that they do need help if they're going to do the best job for their mission, for the, for the you know, client group they really want to help. And I think, you know, it's interesting with charities who... I mean, a lot of the work we do with them is strategy consulting, uh, Mark, really. And we are very, very strong on starting off with theory of change, which is a bit of jargon. But basically, it's trying to say to the charity, what is it you're really trying to achieve here? You know, what would, a, you know, what would be a good outcome for you in terms of what you're trying to achieve? And then also, what is it you do that you think achieves that? And it sounds very, very simple. But we always find that that is the most crucial thing. It's often quite controversial within the organisation. The charity has got a bit muddled up about exactly what it's trying to do. It's now running a number of programmes, which when, when you really confront people, don't seem to have much to do with what they've just told you their mission is. And it's not surprising this happens because charities are, you know, they, they want to solve all sorts of problems. They also look for any kind of funding stream going and, and they get completely, they kind of lose sense of what they're trying to do. And I think if you can, if you can help them, to uh, be much more concrete about what that is, we would then often try and put some kind of uh, metrics around it so they can understand whether it's working. Then it really helps. And I think that kind of understanding has, has come through to the sector in the last 20 years and, you know, partly the result of MPC's work. And so people are more, you know, more understanding of the concept that you're going to have to more than just passion and good intentions you really are going to have to interrogate a little bit harder what you're doing, whether it's working, whether you should shift resources from something which isn't working very well to something that is working very well. So I think that's been that's been quite a big, big change in the whole sector. Some people 
still resist it. They say, hang on, all this kind of stuff about impact and, 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 and outcomes kind of misses out the passion and so forth. But I think if you can put the two together, you really have a, a sector that can do so much more and can really hum. Things happening globally, um, and I'm thinking in, in terms of, um, you know, AI coming into the picture. Um, there's some leaders in the States who are, who are going down heavily empirical-based um, giving models. Um, is that something you've, you've, you know, considered, thought of, because you're sort of at the coalface of the, a lot of the topics? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, philanthropists, not surprisingly, come in all shapes and sizes. Um, you know, there is the, the movement that's known as uh, effective altruism, uh, which to some extent tries to sort of analyse, you know, for a, a pound or often, because it's often American, a dollar, um, you know, what, where can you give that would save the most lives? And that sort of analysis kind of tends to say that all the money should go to malaria nets or something like that. Um, and you can see the case for that, and it sometimes is a, is a useful way of thinking because it emphasises things which could have a massive impact and are being underfunded. But it would be a strange world if we were all just giving money to malaria nets. Uh, and that's not how we want society to work, nor is it the way people think. So some people uh, are, are working in areas which I think metrics can help you quite a lot. I mean, give an example. If, if your main aim in life, let's say, is to reduce the attainment gap between uh, children who are on free school meals, uh, you know, poorer children and, and uh, richer children, uh, then because we have a lot of data longitudinal data there and to some extent you can create control groups and do randomized control trials and all the rest of it you can to some degree work out which are the interventions that work really well and which are the ones that don't seem to work very well um, and for some philanthropists they want to know the answer to that and then they put their money into the ones that work very well um, and that's very sensible and they feel very happy with that others uh, want to do things that are much more complicated they want to do no I don't know help a uh, a sort of village in India to become more sort of sustainable. And exactly what works there, despite the fact there'll be a lot of research and uh, again some randomised control trials, but nevertheless each village is different, the culture matters and all the rest of it, not everything will work. And, and those people, um, you know, almost understand the fact that because they're philanthropists and they're willing to take risks, they don't mind in a sort of way if they lose all the money. They're not looking for a financial return, although there's impact investing, which we might come to later. Um, and therefore, they, they say, well, you know, no, I mean, it, it, that sort of well-evidenced stuff that people invest in, that's what governments should do, uh, you know, and, and if they're not doing it, you know, they should be held to account for not doing it. What we as philanthropists can do is go into the difficult areas, the, the areas which are where we're going to have to take some risks, we're going to try and find out what works, where uh, the result will never be clear. And just to give one other example, Mark, I mean, I, which I think is a very important part, but for someone like me who's an economist, very analytical, love metrics, all the rest of it, but I'm always struck by how important the sector is in making our societies good societies. And I remember visiting uh, some terrific charities in, in a city in the UK uh, where the, the charity, it was a faith-based charity, was working uh, with prostitutes, most of whom were drug addicts, and if I was going to be totally rational, I would say, look, you're not going to be able to change, turn around the lives of most of these people. You'd do much better to put your, your, all your energies into something where you've got a better chance. But do I think the world would be a worse place if they were not doing that and philanthropists were not giving them some money to do that? Absolutely, I do. So it's more complicated, I think, than some of the sort of purely, you know, let's just find 
a sort of you know AI solution to all this. Uh, that will never really um, answer everything. Yeah, absolutely. And so just focusing a bit on yourself and your career. So Oxford University did a master's in economics. Um, economics has kind of has been your thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm afraid I was classic PPE at Oxford, um, which these days is derided a bit of, of causing half the UK problems. Too many politicians did PPE, um, politics, philosophy, economics. And then, yeah, I, I did, a, did a master's in Canada, which was uh, great fun. Um, so I'd done a lot of economics and then I worked as a, a kind of civil servant, as an economist uh, for a bit. I mean, you know, I think the, the, the economics bit obviously, you know, interests me and concepts of, you know, opportunity cost and uh, control groups and all the rest of it, very familiar to me. But, you know, I think it's, it, it gives you a way of thinking, a sort of social science way of thinking about the world. And that's been probably more important in many ways than the fact that I kind of, you know, got academic qualifications and I worked as an economist in government. And even, even I, and I was very lucky, I worked in Downing Street for the Prime Minister, for Prime Minister Gordon Brown, as his, uh, as he had his policy unit for a while, but also his senior economist. And, you know, it, obviously it was very, very helpful that I knew quite a lot of economics, particularly in that difficult time when we were having the financial crash and everything. But you needed to marry it with other things. You needed to marry it with what was possible, with sort of political and personal skills and working with stakeholders and all the rest of it. And all that is very important in, in my MPC job as well. Yeah, because it really struck me. I, I joined the finance sector of sorts in 2008 and we're in the, right in the middle of a you know, big financial crisis. Uh, and actually you were in Downing Street. So, um, you know, and it was, t- it was a time when regulation suddenly became, you know, a big topic. Uh, what government were going to do to rein in these uh, nasty finance people. And suddenly you had sort of finance people who were being held to account as individuals, uh, not just as, as businesses. But um, I, I imagine quite a interesting time would be a way, what was it like being in Downing Street at that time? Was it pretty fraught or? It was pretty fraught, Mark. I mean, it's one of those things that in the middle of it, you know, it was unprecedented um, and we didn't really know what was going to happen from day to day. And it was it was incredibly tense. I mean, looking back on it, what a what a kind of place to be uh, during that that period. And and a lot of it was in a sort of way fun. I mean, if you're an economist who likes policy, there's no better place to to be. I mean, but when, the, you know, certainly as the bank started to, to go under, it, it was very tense. I mean, because we, we didn't really know what was going to happen. There were the recapitalizations of the banks. It was never entirely clear where they're going to work. Had we got the scale of them right? And then I got very involved, Mark, in, if you like, trying to keep the UK economy going during all this and avoiding the worst of the recession. And we created new uh, machinery. We had the National Economic Council, which was very important. Uh, we were trying to think of new schemes to stop, you know, houses being repossessed, firms going under, uh, unemployment soaring. And it was making policy and then trying to implement it and make sure it got delivered in sort of massively quicker time than government normally works. Um, so it was incredible. And I mean, the, the other thing you mentioned, Mark, which is about the regulation, obviously, you know, once we got through the crisis or the worst of it, um, it was obvious that, that things had gone wrong in regulation. Um, and that no one could quite understand what was going on uh, in the banks, including all their non-executives, it turned out, and had quite a lot of the executives. And therefore, certain you know, work, and I, I was involved in some of that, about how we were going to regulate in the future so that these things sort of couldn't happen and make banks hold more capital. 
uh, and, and have living wills and all sorts of things. Um, and I hope it will. I hope that will work for the long run. I mean, there's always been a worry, and people have looked at this historically that you get a big financial crash. The regulation comes in on the banks to stop that happening. After a period, people think, oh, you know, a lot of that regulation is stopping sensible activity. It gets relaxed. And then, you know, 20, 30 years down the line, you get another financial uh, disaster. So I hope that doesn't happen. But, you know, I'm afraid history suggests it will. Yeah. And in terms of during that period, um, burnout personally, like, or just energized by it? Like, how did you cope with it on a personal level? I think at, at times it, 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 it was, you know, sort of burnout. And I'm sure I think my family would have something to say on that. I mean, the only thing, I mean, it's a strange thing in number 10. I mean, I was very lucky. I worked as a special advisor, a political advisor in quite a number of departments earlier on. And that was in some ways even more exhausting because usually the Secretary of State and I, for instance, in the first term of the Labour government, I was at the Department of Trade and Industry. It's now called the Business Department, Bayes. Um, and there was a Secretary of State, and there's only two political advisors, uh, and you end up trying to follow just about everything that's going on. Um, and the Secretary of State kind of, to some extent, relies on you. You're the only people there who are kind of political appointments, so you're, the, you're there for the Secretary of State, uh, where civil servants will be there, whatever happens in, in the UK way of doing things. And that was, at times, probably even more exhausting than in, the, in number 10, where at least there's quite a lot of you not hundreds. I mean, it's a small prime minister's department, if you like, in this in the UK is very, very small. Um, but at least there's some sort of shared uh, experiences, which were, were slightly different. But yeah, no, it, it, it was it was tense because of a lot of workload, but equally trying to work out what was the right thing to do. I mean, I got quite involved uh, once we got through the, the immediate crisis and we very uh, deliberately as a government decided to let borrowing a balloon and the deficit to go up and the debt to go up. Uh, but there was a question about, you know, was there a moment when it went so high that markets would panic about that? Um, and some people, including the Treasury at that time, were very nervous. Um, you know, I'm trying to get give independent advice to the Prime Minister and so forth, talk to a lot of economists, a lot of people on the Monetary Policy Committee, trying to understand what the truth of that was. And to be honest, nobody totally knew. And we had to then make decisions about how quickly uh, we were going to do fiscal consolidation and all the rest of it. Um, obviously, we never really got the chance to, to do that because we got chucked out in 2010. But so that there was tension. So not only the workload, Mark, which, which, which was there, but the, the tension of it and also the feeling that you know, decisions that government was making, you know, it's always the case to some extent, they're you know, going to affect people's lives massively but in this case if we got it wrong the whole financial system came crashing down yeah mass unemployment all the rest of it you you, you can't help feeling that on your shoulders i remember the seriousness of it at the time and i didn't know you were in that room but i remember the government locking themselves in rooms late at night and um you know the next move was crucial to keeping the whole show going uh, and and you know just as a sort of citizen at the time um that kind of from what i can tell led to some consulting, some writing for you, some some policy work. How did you um, throw your hat in the ring for new philanthropy capital, and, and what it looks like as um, sort of a new venture into being a you know a CEO of an organisation? You've got about fifty odd staff. Like, how did that happen? Good question, Mark. Yeah, I mean, after yeah, partly following up what you were saying before. I mean, you know, when I came out of government, I you know I was pretty exhausted. And it's only when you stop doing it that you realise how exhausted you are actually. And so I did work freelance for about a year and I think like a lot of people I found freelance 
you know, on the one hand, terrific. And on the other hand, you know, not, not having colleagues to work with regularly and not quite knowing what next bit of work would happen. A bit difficult, although I did an extraordinary bit of work helping one of the candidates in the Nigerian election to write a manifesto, which was a, something I never thought I'd do, but that was quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then, as you said, I, I went into private sector consulting for a bit, working for FTI, which is a big US consultancy. And, and then now I, I was kind of approached for the MPC job. I had run a, uh, a smaller outfit than uh, MPC called New Local Government Network. It's now called New Local, which worked on lo- with local government um, for a few years. So I had run a, an organisation a bit like a bit like MPC in a different sector. I guess that's one of the reasons that the headhunters came talking to me. And, you know, it was a very tempting job. It mixed up all sorts of things. Um, I, I was lucky to get the job. And, you know, I, I probably overstate this, Mark, but but there's a there's a bit of me that feels that my whole career was kind of get, getting me ready to, to be the right person for MPC in the sense that, you know, I had I had I did a year in a very sort of you know hard nosed private sector consultancy, which was very important um, for understanding how MPC should work on in its consultancy side. Because the consultancy side of MPC, pure consultancy, had only been going a few years, and it was a little bit sort of made up at a time when funding was needed. Uh, the original backers of MPC had slightly run out of room. Uh, um, not money, but the, but the desire to give it anyway. And so the consultancy had been set up, but it, it, it needed a lot of, uh, you know, shaking up and professionalising and all the rest of it. But equally, I think it had become more and more apparent to the, to the board, uh, and they wouldn't have appointed me otherwise, that if we were going to be ambitious and not just be a kind of consultancy to the non-profit sector, which was not the original aim, uh, then we had to get much more into policy um, uh, and communications. We, we sometimes, these days, we, we describe the way that MPC tries to change the world is by helping the sector to improve, helping it to innovate, and trying to influence it. And you have to do all of those things that we're going to change the world. So bringing in the kind of policy side and the comm side, which obviously I'd had a lot of experience at in different ways, public policy, how to get messages across, speaking at things, all the rest of it, doing media, and bringing all those things together um, you know, was exactly what MPC needed. And, and uh, although it's had its challenges, still has its challenges, doing all those things in one organisation, I think, I think it, it sort of has, it has worked. Um, and, it's, and it's been great fun. And I mean, and the last thing to say, I mean, it's interesting, when I took the job, um, you know, what I felt was, I thought, you know, I'm pretty quick at picking up a new sector. I've moved around sectors. I've worked in as a special advisor, I worked in industry, I worked in transport, I worked in education, uh, and so forth. So I, I know I'm quite good at quickly picking up a new set of issues, working out who the key influencers are and the stakeholders. But what I thought is I don't really know the charity uh, world. And I think quite quickly I realised I did know the charity world. I worked with quite a lot of them in different jobs. And to some extent, um, the public sector ethos where I worked for a long time has some similarities. The bit I didn't really know was philanthropy, because you know you don't tend to come across those people in what I've been doing and trying to get inside their heads what makes them uh, do things, um, how you influence them. Uh, that that was probably a bigger challenge. Um, I, I, and in a funny sort of way, for NPC, it still is. I mean, if the original NPC idea in terms of how we change the world has changed the behaviour of funders. And then that will trickle through to the way the kind of the charities all work. And I think that theory is still right. But what it turns out is that the hardest set of people to change the way they behave is the philanthropists 
and the charitable foundations and the grant givers and all the rest of it because they don't really have any burning platform of why they need to change. Yeah, absolutely. And what I looked from the outside in was that you you, know, you really went with the thought leadership. You were a voice where there was quite a lot of quiet voices or non-voices across the sector and, and you've provided a real voice over the 10 years you've been there. You're prolific on Twitter, you're vocal on most topics. What process do you go through when you are controversial or you do take on issues or, or organisations or people? Is it sort of water off a duck's back for you or do you go home and slightly, do you have anxiety at night? Do you sleep well? What's the process like for you? Uh, so that's a nice, nice question, Mark. I mean, I think generally, I mean, me personally, but also MPC as a whole, and we, we talk about this a lot, is, is trying to get our tone right because we want to change the sector. We want to create change. That's the reason we exist. And to some extent, you've got to have a bit of edge so people listen to you. Um, and we're challenging to the sector. You know, we're, we're challenging to everyone else. We have, a, you know, we, we have a go at government when we think they're doing wrong things and, and all the rest of it. But, you know, we're, we want to challenge the sector. But if we do it too fiercely... Um, I, and I think when I first took over, I felt that to some degree, NBC had got into a place, you know, whether I was right or wrong about this, but got into a place where it was sort of slagging off the sector. And I think the sector said, well, look, you know, we understand you don't like us, but we're then gonna, we're not going to listen to you if you're just saying we're not, you know, we're a bit useless and we're not as good. And and I think the you don't get changed by telling people they're, they're, they're rubbish. You, you get change by saying you know we, we understand you we love you and we genuinely do we, we're absolutely passionate about the sector uh, and we want you to become better and that's what we're all about and we want to help you do this and I sometimes sort of uh, sort of because compare us to if you like the sort of you know the, there's the kind of wedding and uh, the whole family are there and there's the sort of cousin who is part of the family and everyone else but is a bit of, can be a slight bit of a pain but if you're too much of a pain nobody will talk to you or listen to you and getting that right is very, very, very important. Um, and it's very interesting, Mark, actually. We, we do uh, an annual survey to try and understand what our, you know, stakeholders, friends, enemies think of us to, you know, to help us think about what we should do next. And we almost always, every year, get some people saying, you know, MPC, you know, you, you, you're always pushing us to improve. Don't you know how hard it is to run a charity? You know, I'm quite pleased if I've just got through the next month and we haven't gone bust and we've helped a few people. And I totally understand that. And then we get another set of people who say, what happened to MPC? You used to be aggressive, taking the sector on. You've gone a bit soft, you know, I'm not hearing it. We tend to think if we're getting both of those, we're probably getting something right. But it's something we think about all the time. And, you know, charities have had a really rough time, but haven't they? And, and sort of keeping the lights on has been a bit of a, a, a focus. I was going to ask you a couple, just on a your thoughts on a couple of topics. So um, my first job in the UK in the charity sector was working for the Terence Higgins Trust, and we merged with London Lighthouse. And I thought at that time, two things. I think the first one was merging charities is very different to merging companies. I thought that would bring about more mergers, or there might be that might be more of a topic for the sector. What are your thoughts on charity mergers, especially in light of the challenging funding you know, environment and, and sort of COVID? I mean, sometimes I'm asked a question, particularly as an economist, about whether there are too many charities in the UK. You know, 168,000, you know, lots of them seem to be doing the same sort of thing, even in the same locality. Shouldn't we sort of cull them or something, make them all merge? And my answer usually is that I don't know if there's too many uh, or not, 
But what I do know is that the way the system works, I'm, I'm not sure we've got the right set of charities. So if you like in the private sector, and it's very imperfect, as you know, Mark, but to some extent, if you're a pretty hopeless organisation, I mean, simple thing, you're selling coffee and your coffee's not very nice, you'll go out of business, you know, and the guys who are making a good coffee will do better. And so to some extent, and you get sort of acquisitions and mergers, and it's very imperfect, but nevertheless, to some extent, sort of the cream rises to the top kind of thing. In the charitable sector, that doesn't happen at all. You can be a not a very good charity, but you've got a good kind of comms operation and fundraising operation, and you can be nicely funded, even though there's another charity down the road that's desperate for money, creating much better outcomes for, this, for, for, for less money, but they can't attract money. So our sector it has a problem there um, about how do you drive sort of innovation and productivity, to use that phrase, which charity sector doesn't like, but I think we should, should use it. Uh, in our sector. When you get to mergers, I mean, we're, we always say that, that people should look at them. We think that, uh, that, that boards every year should at least have to have a discussion and report to the Charity Commission. You know, they had a discussion about whether there was anyone they should merge with. Not that we think they all should merge or anything like that, but it would just make boards think, you know, here's our mission. It's about helping this group of people. Would we do better if we joined up with someone else or, the, or it would not merger? At least we work closer with some of the other organisations that are doing similar things and, and push that a little bit harder. Because mergers are very difficult in the sector. The things that make them happen in the private sector don't really exist in our sector. There's not a lot of people uh, pushing for them. You know, where in the private sector, sometimes when there's a, an acquisition or a merger, then obviously, you know, you go from one chief exec to, sorry, two chief execs to one. The one leaving usually gets a nice payoff off and all the rest of it doesn't happen in our sector so and trustees often do not want to merge because they're quite proud of their organization we follow closely the attempted merger of a couple of organizations there's blogs on our website about it the, the, the two chief execs wanted them to merge but in the end the board of one of the charities who had founded the charity basically because they were the parents of that had tragedies in their lives uh, in the end, the, the, the charity meant something to them personally and emotionally that was almost beyond, uh, above and beyond what the charity actually did, and therefore they, they didn't want to merge. And you get all sorts of things like that going on. Um, I'm, I'm on the board of St Mungo's, which is a sort of major homelessness charity. Are St Mungo's? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean just, just to finish off on that St Mungo's thing. So, and just before I joined the board, St Mungo's had, had merged with Broadway, which is a, another homeless charity, and it was a difficult process. I mean, I, I picked up, came onto the board after that, but you still had the waves of it, um, uh, which were not, which were some of the classic things you get when you have private sector mergers about um, trying to bring the systems together and all the rest of it. But also very different cultures in the two organisations and trying to bring that together, um, you know, was very disruptive. And so I, you, you just do not get enough... I don't think you get enough mergers in the sector. I don't think there should be hundreds. I think sometimes private sector people and philanthropists often say to me, you know, you, you guys at MPC should be pushing lots more mergers. You should set up a, a, a sort of team that go around looking for organisations that should merge and trying to sort of almost lobby for them to do it and all the rest of it. I just don't think the sector's like that or will ever be like that. But we certainly should have more. And it should be something people think about. You know, we've got to, as organisations, always think, what is our mission we're trying to achieve that mission. Is there something, you know, we mustn't get too obsessed just about our organisational survival, which is what we all do. Yeah. It's very natural. 
I think you're right. I mean, I was going to say in terms of that theory of change work that you do um, and revisiting that all the time and helping organizations really drill down on what, why they exist. And actually, shouldn't, you know, for Terence Higgins Trust, for example, with the AZAP um, epidemic, in terms of be really good if we didn't exist in a decade's time, because that actually we would have been played a part on uh, eradicating it. So, you know, like... Well, uh, and that's, I mean, it's a very... It's a very good point, Mark. I mean, we've we, we just actually at the moment got a, uh, a session that's, for, that's aimed at trustees trying to sort of say, you know, how do you close down a project when it's, you know, or it could be a charity when it's done what it should do, you know, and people find that that, that very difficult. Um, you get the same on the philanthropy side. I mean, we always rather like it. You get much more in the States where you have a kind of t- uh, endowment set up, but it's time limited. It's got to be spend, spent within a decade or 20 years or something. And it makes you focus much more on trying to achieve something in that period rather than what tends to happen in those endowed foundations is the key thing is the survival of the organization into the future. And you know, you, you just pay out, you know, 5% is, is by law in the US. We don't have anything like that in the UK. And, and sort of longevity seems, seems to trump impact. And that's not a very good thing either. No. Just thinking of you personally, so thinking about lockdown, thinking about new ways of working, how was that period for you and what was it like running an organisation um, when you kind of can't sit next to, you can't have your, you know, your senior management team in the room with you? How did you, how did you go, how did the organisation go during that period? Well, I mean, no, yes, it, it, it was difficult, Mark. I mean, you know, we're, we're lucky in a way that you know, we we managed to 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 go switch to home working and and all that pretty quickly. Uh, we we had an it, it was quite interesting. Um, we don't know what it will mean for the future. For instance, a lot of work we do uh, obviously is with with clients, and we do you know workshops if we're doing theory of change or so forth. You know, you want to get everyone in the room discussing and being in small groups and putting those you know yellow sticky things all over the wall trying to really brainstorm. You know, and we've you know, we've worked out you can do that. Uh, online and different uh, software um, whether it works quite as well is an interesting thing whether we uh, and our clients will want to go back to in person um, will be very interesting to see there's been of course massive advantages in not everyone not having to travel to these things and we've also been able to do uh, work we've able to bid for work for instance which we wouldn't in the past because geographically the cost of us going and all the rest of it um, you know would have made us uh, sort of non-competitive but in terms of the staff themselves, I think, you know, we, we've probably like a lot of organisations and I talk to an awful lot of charity chief execs and they've all had the same sort of problems, which is, you know, when you're not together in the office, that all that kind of informal communication about what's going on and ideas and so forth doesn't happen. So you try and we did early on in lockdown, you try and compensate by having an extraordinary number of Zoom or Teams or whatever meetings with people so that everybody's in the loop and everyone's got a chance to speak then people get completely sick of that. They can't bear another one of these conversations. Uh, and so you cut back on it. And we've, we've come and gone in cycles on that a bit um, and tried to create, you know, social occasions online, which, you know, some people love, some people hate. So I, I think it's been tricky. I, but the big challenge for us all now, and we're starting to do it as we re- kind of return to the office, the guidance in the UK has changed. We can work from the office again, is the hybrid working and we're clearly going to, like all of us, going to have staff who are uh, working a bit from home and a bit in the office. How does that work? How's it fair? Are the minimum days you have to be in? Um, you know, how do we keep everyone connected? I mean, we, we notice it as well, you know, more junior staff, particularly people who've just joined us in the last year or two. 
you know, usually one of the ways you learn is you're in the office with people, people more senior than you, you chat to them, you hear what they're talking about, you know, when they're talking to other people, all that kind of stuff. And that's how you learn. And that's, you know, how can we make sure that still happens if, if people are working from home a lot? So there's a lot of challenges. I mean, on the whole, though, you know, I think it's terrific. And I think um, it's, it's allowed people to work flexibly. We've always had very flexible working terms for our, our staff. Um, so in some ways, this hasn't hit us as much as, as other people. On the whole, I think it's a great thing. But managing it through it has been difficult. And we've sometimes, I think a lot of organisations have found this, that in person, you can work out when some of your staff are under a bit of stress uh, and they need a bit of help and a bit of support. It's much harder to work that out in Zoom conversations. Thinking about the third sector, is there an organisation or a person doing good work that excites you, that you have come across recently? Is there, is there something in particular that you feel most excited about? Maybe it's even a trend. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always uh, organisations that excite us. I mean, what, you know, as an example, one that we always have liked and it's a good example it is um is a charity called place to be which works on sort of young people's mental health at school and and the thing that's nice about that uh, is which i guess it is a sort of npc sort of pin up as it were is on the one hand they can show you data about their impact and whether it, it works or not and it's good data i mean unfortunately the impact revolution to the extent it, it has sort of taken over the sector has led, led to a lot of organizations sort of publishing an impact report and you have a flick through it and it's nothing to do with impact it's the num- it's still number of lives touched and all that kind of thing yeah um but but uh, an organization like like place to be has got all the data but it's also very good at telling the story and i think in our sector you've got to have you've got to combine the two i mean i think we often say you know no um no stories without data no data without stories and you know combining that I think is very important and then acting on it I mean you know all this impact stuff is not just a stick in your annual report it's to it's to influence the decisions you make about where you put your resource so those kind of organizations are very exciting I think but there's a lot that we're excited at the minute I mean you know one of the things that happened through lockdowns was uh digital becoming suddenly the charity sector had to get into digital technology and, and we do a lot of work on that we can see a lot of upsides there so I think that's you know, something we've been bashing on for quite a time but I think because of what happened during Covid and lockdowns that's accelerated so we'll be doing quite a lot more there there's a lot more in the sector pushing lived experience user voice community voice all that kind of thing we find that very exciting it, it raises some interesting questions for you know the balance between if you like sort of semi-academic evaluation uh, as opposed to kind of what user voice is saying and so forth. But that's really interesting. And it brings in a lot of the diversity side as well as that. And then I think in philanthropy, and you mentioned some of it a bit earlier, Mark, but, you know, we do hope and we're trying to encourage a kind of much more, you know, what we call open philanthropy, where philanthropists and grant makers are much more open about what they're doing, sharing that information with others, um, you know whether things worked or they didn't work or the data they've collected or whatever and that would make the whole sector much more uh, impactful per, per pound per dollar so there's there's a lot of things I think that um, are quite exciting I mean the, the sector certainly in the UK I'm sure it's true just about every country has had a tough time uh, during Covid I mean fundraising was very very difficult and people have run down their reserves and that's true certainly for lots of smaller 
charities as well as the larger ones. So th- th- there's a difficult recovery phase. And we also have the, you know, I, I think there's a governmental problem, which we push very hard on that government, certainly in the UK, but I suspect it's true everywhere, doesn't quite you know, it doesn't quite uh, you take the sector seriously enough. Um, you know, sector's independent. It doesn't want to become part of government or anything like that. But both at national level and at local level, it's got a lot to offer. If you want to create a good place and you want to create social capital and you want to tackle the issues of homelessness and loneliness and all the rest of it, you've got to work with your social sector. And often that is not is not very well done at national or local level. And we keep pushing on that. We just had in the UK a new paper called Leveling Up, White, uh, white paper yesterday which at least pays a bit more lip service than we've had for a while so we're hopeful that that, that uh, shows a sort of change in the, in the thinking yeah. about the social sector which as I say you know is independent it does what it does and that's the point of it provides a plurality of voice it's often critical of governments as it should be but also you know it's, it's absolutely crucial to creating a good society and uh, and I think policymakers need to recognize that much more. What's your interaction with young people and you know they're going to drive the third sector forward. They're going to be in the driving seat. I'm sure you've got a succession plan for MPC, and you know it's a draw somewhere. Have you got real hope in young people and the direction they're going to take the sector? Or yeah, I mean, and we have terrific, uh, you know, um, the young people coming into us at MPC. You know, I say we're about fifty uh, strong, but you know we get people coming in uh, in their sort of mid twenties, early thirties. They stay with us two or three years. And off they go into, into great jobs, taking the MPC gene to wherever they go within the sector or, or out of the sector. Um, I mean, I do think I do think the sector needs to keep, uh, you know, alive to what young people care about. I mean, I sometimes worry. Well, I don't know if I worry, but I can see a world where, you know, uh, the, the charity model is not what younger people will want to go into. So they've got a social conscience. I mean, for instance, if you set up a charity that's going to... Um, you know, help uh, people with mental health in your town or something. Traditionally, you'd set up a charity, you'd have to fundraise right off to loads of grant makers, have a jumble sales, you know, do sponsored runs uh, uh, to help those people. And you have to keep doing that. And I think that model and the governance that goes around it, I I think will get rejected uh, quite a lot. And people will be much more interested in setting up a social enterprise. So, you know, you see people, for instance, setting up a social enterprise to mend bikes, in that town and they will say that half the people we're going to employ are going to be people with mental health issues and therefore I'm helping people directly it's less sort of top-down paternalistic I don't have to spend my life fundraising I can focus more on doing good stuff so I think I think and you get that side of the charity sector under threat and the other side you get the kind of movement side um, where people say you know um, charities all a bit sort of stayed and so forth I want to join a sort of campaign that's, um, you know, going to have street action on climate change uh, or whatever. And then that's much more exciting. And that's what I want to do. So I think I think there's some challenges to the sector. It, it, you know, I think there's room for all of these things personally, uh, and we've got to make them sort of happen. But the, the, the charity sector sometimes can feel a little bit sort of like, you know, a bit staid, a bit dull, a bit kind of too tied up in in sort of governance and, and fundraising and that isn't very exciting to anyone really yeah and just completely different subject but what do you do in your spare time how do you uh, kick back 
<laughs> well, I am a uh, a mad football fan. I'm a Chelsea season ticket holder for my sins, so uh, that's good. I still even I still try and play when the, when the knee's not playing up, so that's important. Um, I also, I've also you know through my life I've always tried to write short stories, and um, I haven't had a lot of time to do that, but something that I want to turn back to. And also during lockdown, I got going again. In my youth, I played not very well, a bit of tennis sacks. And I've been having lessons again now. I'm not my my team at MPC are rather eager for me to perform for them, but I think there'll be a long wait for that. Wonderful. Well, really enjoyed our conversation and uh, hearing your thoughts on the sector. Congratulations on a great ten years at MPC, and um, yeah, thank you for joining me and good luck for the future to both you and your organisation. Thanks a lot, Mark. Very good to talk to you. Take care. listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 